The story of Baba Deep Singh is one of the most iconic stories in Sikh history. Deep Singh, Sikh general and renowned warrior, leads a group of Sikhs in pitched battle to reclaim the occupied Harmandir Sahib in Amritsar, probably the most important single place in Sikhdom. In battle, he is decapitated, but according to the story, rises, picks up his head, and only falls once he's walked hundreds of yards to the precincts of the temple. The symbol of the headless warrior is an ancient one in Indic cosmology, and its significance is a call to the deepest strength in all of us. Here to discuss this symbology is my guest Javala Singh. Javala Singh was born and raised in Ottawa, Canada, and always had an interest in Sikh scripture through his father. He had the rare and special experience of spending six months learning from Sant Gyani Indrajit Singh, student of the renowned traditional institutional leader Sant Gurbachan Singh, a Sikh scholar whose lineage traces back to the 10th Guru, Guru Gobind Singh. He studied with Gyani Indrajit Singh in India for about six months straight, going through the Guru Granth Sahib along with other traditional texts. In addition to traditional learning, he studied political science for his BA, then went to law school following that up with a master's in the study of religion, where he is focusing on the Dasam Granth, the writings of the Sikh 10th Guru, specifically its Puranic or epic retellings, and in particular, stories of Krishna and Rama. Jivala Singh, welcome to The One. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's uh, really uh, cool to have you on here. Um, I encountered your work uh, just online. Uh, I know that you've given uh, talks in connection, I think, to kind of uh, panel discussions and, and, and groups of talks uh, organized by Jakarta. Um, and I saw in particular this work uh, or this um, discourse that you gave on the story of Karag Singh uh, from the Dasam Granth. And if I'm remembering correctly, it's from a particular part of the Dasam Granth, the story uh, from the Krishan Avtar, is that right? Correct, yeah. And so, and, and so um, kind of all, all, you know, you're the pro, so I'm just going to give a little <laughs> bit of my understanding of the story and, 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 uh, and you can kind of take it from there and, and, and really give us the, give us the, uh, real kind of deeper explanation of it. But, but Kadag Singh, if I remember correctly is, um, or I guess, first of all, the Christian Avtar is like a, a retelling of some of the famous sort of epic stories that we have in the ancient, uh, Sanskrit, um, writings of Krishna's life. Uh, is that right? Yeah. So the Krishna Avtar and the Dasam Granth is basically a braj or like an ancient Hindi, medieval Hindi type of translation uh, from the Sanskrit Bhagavad Purana, which okay. is Bhagavad Purana is basically, uh, it's not the Mahabharata, but it's another text which dives uh, a little bit deeper into actually Krishna's life story. And the Mahabharata, of course, is the the most famous uh, epic, uh, uh, Indian epic that talks yeah. of this sort of that. This is where we get the Bhagavad Gita, the ideas yeah. uh, uh, that of Krishna explaining the ideas of 
righteous, uh, I guess, righteous action to to uh, Arjuna, the warrior prince, and 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 whatnot. So this is going more into the story of Krishna, uh, as I understand. Correct. It. Yeah. Yeah, and so the Krishna avatar specifically is only the translation of the tenth chapter um, of the Bhagavad Purana, and the Bhagavad mm-hmm. Purana is quite large at that. Um, so yeah. And so did um, why did Guru Gobind Singh? Why was he writing about uh, Krishna? Right, and this is, I mean, getting into the heart of kind of the discussion about, you know, why are some of these components in the Dasam Granth, these compositions, written about Krishna, for example, in the Krishna Avatar, or Ram in the Ram Avatar. You know, all of these make up uh, actually the second largest composition in the Dasam Granth called the Chobis Avatar, which is the 24 incarnations of Vishnu. Right, and then, you know, that's the question, right? Why is Guru Gobind Singh writing about, you know, Hindu in quotation marks um, deities, right? Right, because this is the kind of the traditional uh, understanding of Sikh uh, philosophy is that we kind of reject the 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 idols of uh, the kind of the Hindu gods and uh, idolatry and superstition, right? So it's I guess Mm -hmm. it sort of creates the and yeah, a question as to why this would even be touched on by a Sikh guru. Right. And actually, you know, it's kind of this sentiment that because um, Sikh philosophy can only, you know, this is the idea by some scholars that any talk about Krishna or Ram or these other avatars, incarnations, you know, are not relevant for discussion. So they get avoided from scholarship. Hmm. Um, and even the scholarship that has been done on this type of, um, retellings of these ancient Sanskrit tales um, is extremely lacking at the moment. Mm. In fact, Dasam Granth scholarship as a whole, um, when you look at uh, other scholars around at Columbia University, you have Alison Bush, and you have other uh, scholars like uh, Michael Allen who, who study these medi- medieval Braj texts, none of them have even heard of some of these stories out of the Dasam Granth, which is, mm. is quite shocking uh, considering the amount uh, of literature that was produced uh, in Sikh uh, in the Sikh community at that time, and so, um, so I guess the 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 question uh, is like: is there is there uh, is this where some of the questions about the authorship of the Dasam Granth come from? Absolutely. I mean, there's a couple of issues in regard to scholarship. But certainly amongst the most, the most uh, influential is, is this idea that the Guru could not have written um, just a translation of the Sanskrit text. Mm. And that sentiment kind of stops scholarship. So what I'm trying to do um, in this master's degree and in this thesis is looking at the old Sanskrit texts and then comparing them to um, the writings in the Dasam Granth. And what was immediately shocking to me, and which is why I, you know, really examine that story of Karag Singh, is that, okay, if it is a translation of a Sanskrit text, would it not be identical? Okay, if it's not identical, what's different? What's mm. missing? What's added into that text, right? And that's why the Karag Singh story is so interesting, because Karag Singh doesn't, that character doesn't find any mention in the original Bhagavad Purana, right? Mm. So why, if this is a retelling, why is this added in to this component, right? What is it telling us? 
what was in the uh, mind of the author when he was writing this? And then kind of comparing the two, you can kind of shed light on maybe where the author was going with this, you know, composition. Is it just in praise of Krishna or is he doing something else, mm. right? What is he doing in this? And that's what I was trying to get at through examining the story of Karak Singh. And uh, so I guess we can start getting into the actual story. Uh, who Who is Karak Singh in this retelling? Um, and and what is his connection to this this image of the uh, headless warrior that we mm -hmm. we encounter? So, in the Krishna avatar, many people um, actually. What's interesting about the Krishna avatar is that the majority of the Krishna avatar is written uh, is descriptions about Krishna's battles, right? And when you compare that with the original Bhagavad Puran. The original Bhagavad Purana didn't really focus that much on the battles. You know, it's mainly known for, especially the 10th chapter, uh, for its love stories of Krishna with Radha and the other gopis as well. Mm -hmm. So, Karak Singh comes into the point where he's fighting, Krishna is fighting uh, Jarasand. And Karak Singh, um, which is the main enemy of Krishna, Jarasand, Karak Singh ends up fighting for Jarasand, his friend. You know, and Karak Singh, when they say the word Singh here, they're talking about uh, a Rajput warrior. Singh was a very common name at the right. time. So, you know, just for the for the listeners and yourself, you know, Karak Singh was not actually uh, a historical person. He was not like maybe an, uh, a warrior in Guru Gobind Singh Ji's army. But this is like a mythological, you know, quote unquote fictional character, right? That the, the gurus or the authors is inserting into this um, battle. Hmm. So, you know, it starts off with Karak Singh um, fighting uh, the armies of Krishna and, you know, uh, he keeps destroying the armies and uh, it goes on from there, from uh, defeating, uh, you know, regular Rajputs to defeating uh, Krishna's brother to defeating various gods. And it ends up, uh, the climax of the story is where um, through, even through deception that Krishna does with Brahma and the other gods, um, Karak Singh ends up losing his head. Um, mm. But that doesn't stop Karak Singh at all because he picks up his head and he throws it at Krishna, knocking Krishna out and he falls off his chariot. And then he approaches Shiva and he fights Shiva as well. And he slaps Shiva down, right? <laughs> and he only, he only stops fighting when the gods, Krishna, Shiva and all these others uh, admit defeat. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, listen, you won and uh, you can stop fighting now. And then Karak Singh uh, goes to heaven. But what's interesting about that story is that, you know, and people have interpreted this in, in many different ways, right? So some readers have, have said, perhaps um, Karag Singh here represents the Khalsa, you know, the ideal Khalsa warrior. But um, at the end of the story, Krishna says, you know, in, when he's questioned by his older brother as to who Karag Singh actually was, Krishna says, listen, this whole play, this whole drama of this battle was actually... Um, ordained such that it would destroy the pride of my followers. You know, these kings thought they were uh, had the protection of me, and they became egotistical. Hmm. So this is why Karak Singh took birth, such that he could destroy them. And I am no different than Karak Singh. So you can't just overlay that story with a simplified historical narrative, saying that okay, this group represents that guy, this group represents this. You know, it's much more complicated than that. And mm. what I was also trying to get at is 
what type of um, what are the ideals being carved out here in the story, right? What what is being praised? What is being um, uh, basically condemned mm-hmm. through the poetry, right? What is it trying to get at? Um, and it constantly you find this these references about you know the duty of a kshatriya, duty of a warrior is to fight, you know. Mm. And I believe that um, really speaks to a lot of uh, the essence and maybe even the purpose of these retellings. Because even at the end of the Krishna Avatar, you have these lines um, which talk about the author, the Guru Gobind Singh, saying that he's only writing this to ins- to aspire to inspire. Sorry. Uh, this warrior um, essence and to mm. kind of um, make uh, the warrior feel like he should do taram yod, mm. righteous warfare, fight for taram. So, yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about that because so we have this story of uh, of this sort of one person that's just fighting, literally fighting deities mm-hmm. Um until they are decapitated, then standing up, taking their head, throwing it, throwing it at sort of, you know, one of the among the apex gods, if you will. And the, you know, if we're talking top tier uh, Hindu <laughs> yeah. gods, uh, throwing it, his his decapitated head at Krishna and then f- slapping in the face the embodiment, like the Hindu cosmological embodiment of destruction and death, Shiva, like to the ground, um, and and not basically giving up until literally the gods themselves like admit defeat. So, so why would Guru Gobind Singh like why why would he be so interested in manifesting this or or encouraging this like indomitable like warrior uh, fighting spirit? Like what was the context around him? This is another thing that's kind of lacking when you look at the scholarship surrounding the Dasam Granth is that are people looking into the context um, surrounding that formation of the literature? Hmm. Because I think that also helps to give insight as to what the text is writing about, right? It sheds light on... um, what was going on at that time. So, for example, when you have uh, the Guru trying to amass basically an army, right? He's making a call out. People are trying to give him arms and and he's really at odds with uh, the rulers at the time. You know, it would, you know, given that context, it would make sense that the Guru is trying to inspire in his followers and his warriors this idea that, you know, even the top of the top, the deities, all of the hierarchy will not be able to stop you if you have that spirit, right? And it's a very specific, he's not talking about, okay, so maybe we can talk a little bit about, I mean, just how sort of dire was the situation of the six in, I, we're talking the late uh, 17th century, right? I mean, what is the yeah. situation, how is he at, the, at odds with, uh, the state and its auxiliary sort of um, the hierarchy that's that sort of supports uh, the Mughal Empire and, and its uh, various uh, kind of fiefdoms and and area of control. Yeah, well, I mean, um, his father at a young age was uh, killed by the emperor, right? 
and uh, he had to take a great responsibility when he was, you know, basically a young child. And having grown up in that type of uh, conflict, not only was he in conflict with the, uh, the empire, but with the local Hildrajas at the time, when they saw um, his community growing, mm -hmm. they were actually the first ones to uh, basically try to put an end to uh, his growing community. So he was at odds with a whole bunch of people, not only um, outside of the community, but inside the community as well. You had um, other people vying for guruship as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you have Harji, uh, who were also writing their own literature at that time as well. And this is what makes the Ramathar, the writings about Ram, so interesting by, by Guru Gom Singh, is that uh, his contemporary, the other... Um, uh, you know, Guru Harji, mm -hmm. who wanted to claim his guruship, he wrote his version of the Ramayana as well. Uh, that was called the Adi Ramayana. So mm -hmm. he was based in Amritsar, and he had a following there. Mm -hmm. um, so some people are looking at these texts as not only communicating with um, maybe the courts of that time, being either Emperor of Aurangzeb or the local Hiraraja courts, but also internally stating what he will do as a guru compared to perhaps Harji. Hmm. And in speaking to, and then when you look at who he was speaking to, the audience, that also gives you more clues as to why the Dasam Granth is written in this way. For example, uh, the language, right? Why is Dasam Granth written primarily in Prajpasha? Hmm. The courts at that time, local Hiraja courts, they all were um, basically, uh, they had poets under patronage who would be writing similar type of literature, right? And in fact, the story about you know headless warrior, um, some hundred years ago, uh, a very famous uh, Braj poet, uh, Keshavdas Mishra, he wrote a story um, about the king who was patroning him. He, um, the text is called Ratana, pa uh, Ratana Bhavani. Mm -hmm. uh, it was composed in 1581. And in that story as well, he talks about uh, the heroic king um, who fought against uh, the Mughals and whose head got cut off and then he uh, continued fighting, you know, so it's wow. mixing again um, historical with mythological um, And that symbol is potent, right? I mean, that's when you're, it's, it's sort of like if when you're saying when, when you describe, it sounds to me it's when you describe this image of the headless warrior rising up and taking their head what, what I'm kind of understanding here is that that's an understood uh, icon in terms of what that means to people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, Baba Deep Singh is renowned for this. But right. even in our history, we have other warriors that, um, and we have paintings of this as well, uh, frescoes uh, of um, other Sikh warriors um, picking up their heads and fighting as well. And prior to our community forming, you know, you have this text, Ratana uh, Bhavani mentioning it. You have Sanskrit literature also talking about warriors who did this, such that, if, you know, it was so well used. They even have a Sanskrit word for a fighting headless <laughs> torso. It, oh. it, was that, it was that well used, right? Wow. Um, and when what? you think about... What is the word? Uh, uh, kubadda. Kubadda. Does it have like a kind of a sort of a, um, what's the word, like a... A root meaning or a kind of an etymology? Um, it's just something along the lines of like a fighting headless trunk, like a torso <laughs> that's just still alive. <laughs> Sorry, that's not. 
I, I hope nobody thinks that laugh is blasphemous. That's really interesting. <laughs> so, I mean, um, these images, this symbolism, this uh, iconography was being used uh, prior to the Guru in his writing of Karik Singh and uh, prior to these stories of Baba Deep Singh. But mm. uh, you can see how powerful this type of imagery is. And when you talk about the headless warrior, right? Like right. where else do we find that in our community? What do people ask you when you go to take Amrit, right? When Absolutely. you take the Amrit Sanchara initiation, yeah. they ask you, sees Guruka, is your head, are you going to give your head to the Guru? Right. Uh, but that this, that it, even has symbological like pre, pre-existence before. I mean, that's the symbol that Guru Nanak talks about when he says, I forget the line in Gurmukh, in Punjabi, but he says, if you want to play the game of love, come come to me with your head in your hand. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, so so, so that's like, and is there a, is there, um, I don't want to jump around too much here, but is there also a symbology in terms of sort of the, the headlessness? To me, when I read that line, uh, if you want to play the game of love, come to me with your head in your hand, to me, that's sort of saying the head is sort of the symbol of ego or egocentric, uh, like a subjective self that is separate from the totality of creation. Um, and you're sort of negating that or or denying that that uh, sort of illusion. I mean, is that? Absolutely. And also kind of dying, um, you know, killing off the ego, mm. cutting off your own mind. And then um, taking uh, the Guru's mind, you know, mm. from Manmat to Gurmat. Mm. Um, you know, there's deep symbolic s- symbolism that, you know, Bhakti literature, like you mentioned, Guru Nanak uses it, um, as well as this type of Raso literature. This Raso literature being uh, martial literature that Guru Gomes is using. Mm. So, so there's a real connection. And you were talking about the sort of the, the principles that he was he was pushing. He was sort of compelling people towards through these writings to me i mean i would assume have a connection to this bhakti aspect even though we're talking about this bhakti meaning devotional sort of more peaceful uh esoteric con- uh, 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 interpretation but then it's being used in this context that's literally telling people like also you m- might lose your head like you might die in the process of fighting this battle oh absolutely i don't i don't think um if you classify the dusting ground as being very martial i don't think it it's sep- it's separate from this devotional aspect itself i mean that's sure. been exemplified in the story of karak singh um constantly there's reference to um karak singh praising uh paramatma or the highest being you mm. know quote unquote god right um even to the extent that at the end of the story krishna says why is he a good warrior because he has Hari's name in in his heart. Hmm. Um, so there's, uh, you know, in Dasam Granth is littered with, even in uh, the martial poetry, with uh, these devotional uh, aspects as well. I don't think they go, uh, I don't think they're quite separate. Right. So it's sort of like, import, I mean, it's very important that at the core of this very martial sounding, uh, like language you have this idea that that the root of all of this sort of necessary violence um is the fact that you're protecting 
the the philosophy or the idea that that the Sikh ideas or the Sikh that Sikh thought were embodying in terms of um, anti-oppression, like allowing or or guaranteeing the well-being of the of the community uh, beyond any kind. Because his father, right? We have his father dies for the Kashmiri pundits who are Hindus, uh, like. He's what we're what we're fighting, or what he's talking about fighting for is is these these bhakti or these devotional ideas. Absolutely, is, is that, I, I, yeah. No, absolutely, and I think the compositions themselves. I mean, when you look at who are they speaking to, right? The Chobi Safar is speaking to Vaishnava communities because it's about um, the stories of the incarnations of Vishnu, and you have other Chandi Charitras, the stories of the goddess, speaking to Shakti communities. Um, you have the Rudra Avtar, the the incarnations of Shiva speaking to the Shaiva communities. Hmm. Um, these compositions have been seen as a way to connect to these other communities, to basically advocating to them that if your ancestors, if the deities that you worship, if their stories are all about fighting for righteousness, then isn't it incumbent upon you to also follow in their footsteps? And in this way, I think, a lot of these compositions are kind of reifying uh, the stories about Krishna, reifying the stories about Ram and Shiv and all these different deities to say, to kind of put it in line with the mission of the Guru, kind of advocating to those communities that, um, you know, you can join the fight. And now, I don't know if there's an answer to this or if you have an answer to this, but was he appealing to all of these communities saying um i don't know i don't want to say this like in an overly simplified way but was he sort of saying come become sikhs or was he saying come whatever you are and fight with this with us because we're fighting on the same we're fighting for justice as i can demonstrate to you with your own tradition or is it maybe both or neither or? Yeah, I mean, this is the problem um, with some scholarship is that when we look back now, like our ideas of identity yeah. are modeled with uh, post-colonial thought. Basically, um, we see a great deal of separation between these communities where um, a lot of scho scholars who have studied, you know, the colonial period, um, you know, the period before that may not have uh, viewed some of these differences in communities as, as so uh, black and white. So if your question is, you know, is he saying come become sick or come to fight? I would probably go with the latter in that, um, you know, it's possible that the scripture of the Dasangrant, the strategy around it is to advocate to different communities, not in the sense of uh, come maybe, you know, take Amrsanjara. But do what you think, uh, do what is right, do what is for Thuram, hmm. in the same way that your uh, deities also did in the past. And look, we're telling you what they did in the past. And and so this, it's an interesting, I mean, so. Uh, I think it I, speaks to the inclusiveness of the scripture as well. I mean, right. And I mean, because he had to have been, Gurgobind Singh was a scholar, I mean, who is who is gaining knowledge perspectives inspiration from a huge source of it seems to me like he's not just 
going and reading the Sudigur Granth Sahib and like only reading the Sikh texts, he's like reading everything. I mean, um, we have literature from the 18th century, that uh, historical literature that talks about what what was his learning, what what was his curriculum when he was young, uh, what languages he he was learning, and it was definitely you know he we have historical references that he was learning Sanskrit as well as Farsi, and he took a great apparently uh, uh, according to um, the Bansavli Nama, it's a 1760 text. He took a great liking to. Uh, both Farsi and Persian and Braj Basha, hmm. uh, which is evident in his work as well, which is also evident in his style of uh, calligraphy. Hmm. Uh, his Gurumukhi has this um, Persian type of inflection to it. Hmm. So, so um, yeah, I mean, he was very well read, and that's you know very evident in uh, the type of literature that he produced, as and well then- as. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I, I guess then. So, so, and then at the same time, it's like he's using that broad. It seems to me that broad array of learning to then turn around and say, um, he's sort of finding the the the, I guess the source sort of motivations, the truths, the principles that are in these various traditions and these various sort of. Yeah, these various traditions, and then he's connecting them to the mission of of the Khalsa as a force that's essentially fighting for righteousness against oppression, against uh, domination by any one hierarchical structure. Right. Absolutely. And in, in this way, he's providing access to people that also wouldn't have the ability. So it's not only... I mean, when we look at the history, it's not only the fact that Guru Gobind Singh was taking literature that could not be read by low caste. Right. Some of these Sanskrit tales could not be read by them, could not be understood by them. So they were, they had to learn this, or they had to hear about uh, their de- uh, deities or divinities through uh, the pundits, right? The, mm-hmm. the people at the higher end of society. So in translating it, He's also making uh, these ideas accessible to people that would not have it, right? And and also in doing that, he's reifying, according to him, what he thinks is important in those mm. texts as well. And that's right. why the study of them is so interesting, because you get to see, once you compare and contrast them, you can say, oh, okay, so the guru put emphasis on these components of the text. And then, it's, and then you ask, okay, why is that? And then you have to go into context. And um, yeah, and that way it sheds great light on on the literature so the way that you're um the and it's interesting because the way that you're reading these texts seems like a very it's very nuanced it's very sort of um you're taking into account context you're taking into account um various like linguistic um like features you're you're talking you're thinking about the various communities that he's talking to. So, I mean, how, um, is there a way, do you think that there's, that there is a way that it's also being interpreted? Um, I don't know. Like, is there a more literal interpretation that you are, um running up against or or like that you're uh having to sort of consider 
um, that that maybe takes these texts as like a more of a I don't know, like a liturgical, like a like like almost like um law or or um I don't really know yeah. how to explain that sort of contrast, but yeah, I know. Which I mean, there there's a number of problems when you look at the text literally. I mean, and what I mean by that is how scholars seem to look at it because you know there's two ends that you really have to avoid here, and one is that um, because these are um, you know just only Braj translations of a Sanskrit text, and that they are no different than the old Sanskrit text in that they follow in the same theme, they follow in the same line of praising those divinities. If you follow that track, then you get into trouble with reading Dasam Granta. I mean, uh, it's the same with everything. I mean, your podcast is called The One, right? But did you know uh, Greg Gutfeld, a far-right conservative Fox News host, uh -oh. commentator, <laughs> he also has a podcast named The One. No. Right? <laughs> so in 20 years from now, are we going to say Shabbat and uh, Greg Gutfeld, a far-right conservative for <laughs> Fox News, they were speaking about a similar thing. They had the same name of the podcast. <laughs> you know, they both had a podcast. So this, that's one Definitely. end of the problem, to think it's all the same, right? And another end of the problem is to think that what the guru was writing was totally unique and we have mm. to reinterpret everything that he wrote right I see. because that then puts a blind spot uh for scholars on you know who was the audience what kind of structures was, was he using what are the poetics that he's using you know and it helps you really appreciate um the message that he's trying to get across and i think both of those problems are evident in scholarship today about the testament so where um so how does this then connect i guess maybe we can connect it a little bit more to the story of baba deep singh because this the story of baba deep singh happens long after or not long after but after the death of guru gobind singh right um and then this symbology i don't know if you know so first of all i guess the question is is like well um I think it, it's a matter of faith for many Sikhs that that they believe in an, a literal sort of um, ex, a literal interpretation of the story of Baba Deep Singh that he was uh, fighting his way. So I guess maybe we can talk a little bit about the story um, as it's sure. typically told or understood. Um, and 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 feel free to to interrupt me or to embellish or or whatever. But yeah, if I remember correctly. Um, Gosh, I don't remember who the the occupiers actually are of Harmandir Sahib at this time. Do you? Uh, I believe it uh, was the force of Amjad Ali, but I could be incorrect. But it was some time. It was some uh, where around the years of like a hundred years after, or maybe eighty years after the passing of Guru Gobind Singh. And Sikhs are it's kind of dire straits. Uh, the 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 sort of holy of holies has been ransacked and taken um by uh, Ahmed Shah Abdali, the Afghani king um and Baba Deep Singh is like this like he's an old man at this point right i mean isn't he like in his 80s or something I like think that between 70 and 80 i believe yeah yeah and and he but he's like still this incredible warrior and leader and scholar and uh like accomplished in terms of like his spiritual discipline and 
and, and highly, highly respected. And he draws like a, I guess in the story, as I recall, there, he draws like a literal line in the sand and says, you know, um, I guess goes around recruiting uh, men to go take back the the Harmander side or the the pre and the precincts around it, um, and then launches an attack on the yep. Afghani forces, <clears throat> and has his and and meets I believe like sort of one of the I don't know I guess one of the company commanders or sort of one of the leaders of of the opposing force and meets him in you know one on one battle and is and Baba Deep Singh is decapitated and then the traditional story is is that he picks his head up um and walks the rest of the way several hundred yards or so to the Harmander side where he reaches the precincts and it was sort of this vow that he'd made that he would make it there and once he reaches the precincts he drops he drops uh, you know lifeless to the floor right Right. And it's a powerful story, right? To yeah. this day, people go to Hamander Sahib and there's a there's a spot there uh, where, there's where his photo is and uh, commemorates where he uh, fell on his knees there and then passed away, right? So, I mean, even today that holds, um, you know, a lot of significance for yeah. Sikhs. And the point of it is not to say, okay, you know, the science is that that's not possible. And right. The, the idea is that when looking at that story, or when looking at other stories, uh, such as some of the scripture that we have, I think just by taking that story literally, we're doing a great disservice to the story as well. Because, um, you know, what is the story trying to inspire, right? What's it trying to get across, right? If we try to take that, if we try to take everything literally, uh, and basically confide it to those uh, quote unquote truths, then we are limiting it, right? I mean, it's in the same way of interpreting some of these stories, right? I mean, in Baba Deep Singh, I, th I believe the earliest mention of um, him without his head fighting is written by Gyani Gyan Singh, uh, who was probably the, one of the most prominent um, Sikh historians in the 20th century, late 20th uh -huh. century, early 21st century. But he also writes, Gyani Gyan Singh, um, a story... In, I believe the text is called the Vada Guru Khalsa. And in this text, um, six of Guru Gobind Singh Ji asked Guru Gobind Singh Ji, can you, um, can you write down, can you do a dika, a commentary on the meanings of Guru Granth Sahib? Because me and my friends, we're debating and we always debate. We, we are unsure or it's unclear to us the meaning of some of these uh, passages within the Guru Granth Sahib. And then Guru Gobind Singh Ji says, listen, this question has been posed to Guru Arjan Dev Ji as well. And I'll tell you the same thing, is that we cannot confine uh, the meanings of Gurbani, of, these, of the poetry, of this scripture, to, um, to, to a few lines mm. in a commentary book, in an explanation book. Right. And, and when you think about that, and, and then later on the explanation is that, you know, Gurbani is not uh, adherent or it's not confined to the laws of Vyakaran or grammar, right? And, and as such, it's written by uh, Paramatama as Turkibaniyai, and that we cannot, um, we cannot do it justice by just writing a few lines and explaining what the meaning is that way. Mm -hmm. But if you kind of step back from that a little bit, take out the religious 
a component of that. I mean, you go to any art gallery and you talk to any artist, they'll tell you the same thing, that when you ask them the meaning behind their composition, their piece of work, they say that, you know, it's not us, it's not for us to define it. And it mm. is whatever um, the viewer or the listener, whatever they have in their mind, you know, the beauty is in the eyes of the beholder in that sense, right? Wow. So Guru Gobind Singh is, is asked directly, can you explain what this means? And he goes, and he leaves, he sort of puts it into the, almost like the hands of the, of the, of the learner to say, well, actually it's about your journey or it's about your sort of unfolding of understanding. Absolutely. Yeah, and he, he, he quite says uh, that it's dependent upon um, somebody, somebody's own intelligence and desires. Mm. It's basically where they're at in their life. I mean, this is how Gany Gyan Singh explains it, but uh, it speaks to that same point, is that um, meaning is not maybe found in the literal um, ordering of the words. There's more to it beyond just the surface. You have to dig a little deeper. So he, right. So, I mean, that, and this feels, and I, you know, I mean, this is, I'd be interested to hear from, from folks who listen to this and, and, and uh, I don't know, this is just my own reflection, but you know, that, that is not like the sort of feeling that I personally, you know, got or, or saw sort of in the transmission of learning about Guru Granth Sahib in, in, Gurdwaras or or places of learning that it was it seemed like there was a quite sort of like a almost like a literal or like a well you know this means you can't you're you're not allowed to do this and that means you're allowed to do that and, and this sort of very sort of like like a sick is this and a sick is that and a sick is not this and a sick is not that and if you don't do this or if you do this you're good and if you do this you're bad I mean it, it, right you know and, and I'm you know, thinking of myself as a kid, but um, the way that it's taught is not in this sort of, at least from my perspective and experience in a lot of ways, is not this like um, sort of fluid, interpretive, artistic um, way. Absolutely. I mean, this is a problem when you try to take um, Gurbani or some of our literature as Kind of a rule book and not to say mm. that it doesn't there's not uh prescriptions within the scripture it's just mm. that if you only take it as a rule book you're kind of confining it you know as mm. opposed to you know poetry that you can really enjoy you know hence the music accompanying it as well i mean and poetry by its very nature is trying to describe something which can't be defined which which you can't write about right hence yeah. in gurbani you know the majority of gurbani just riddled with this alphabetic language, right? Alphabetic language being um, you're trying to describe something by removing concepts, hmm. you know? When when you think about Jabsaib, you know, Akale, Apale, it's always with the A in front of it, right? It's not this. It's not that. Right. You know, the idea is you're trying to dis disregard concepts to get an essence of what is actually there, you know? Hmm. And it, it's no different than a sculpture would do um, taking a big piece of rock, right, and just kind of shaving pieces off mm. to get to the essence. Not about putting pieces on. Mm. Right. It's kind of um, 
it's almost like breaking breaking your your conceptions of what you kind of understand or what you breaking sort of preconceived notions about life or about the nature of, of existence and reality absolutely um, i mean on one hand you have that and on the other like where it says not this not that and on the other hand you have compositions especially in where you have it is this it is that you know right. it's in the water it's in the sky it's in everything mm. right mm. so maybe this with that some of this in mind maybe we can talk a little bit about what are the kind of the the principles that he's compelling the readers of these different stories towards of course we know that he's saying the ultimate goal is saying you know dharma or righteousness or or justice is under threat by the and and perhaps the reader of the day would would understand this to be in the context of with the mughal empire or with the ruling kind of hierarchical structures of the day saying you know this is justice peace uh you know common just sort of safety and and one's allow one's allowance or or ability to live in peace is being threatened uh please join us to fight but but sort of what is it that he is compelling people to protect what are these sort of principles or these philosophies uh if we can even start to uh maybe touch on some of that i mean if you look at the Bajitharnatak, which is the basically the autobiographical uh, autobiography um, composition within the Dasamgrant, he speaks to you know what his own mission is in that light and uh, what Dharma would be composed of protecting people right mm. from from injustice. He talks about his father, mm. how he suffered at the hands of the Mughal Empire only on account of protecting somebody else's dharma, right? Right. right. Uh, the Kashmiri Brahmins. So you have these ideas about standing up and protecting those who possibly can't protect themselves. Hmm. But the Dasyamrat is much more nuanced than just that alone. I'm, you yeah. can use that to gen, um, as a kind of generalization, and it's a useful generalization sure. when you look at uh, the poetics of it as well. You know, it's definitely in the genre of uh, Rasa poetry or, or martial poetry. But even within there, you find these tidbits of, of uh, really sophisticated um, bhakti or devotional worship type of uh, scripture. Hmm. Um, and they all kind of seem to go at this idea that, uh, I mean, when you look at the Akalusat, for example, you know, the, some, of the, uh, some of the opening phrases there, um, the very interesting compositions there are talking about um, what dharma isn't, right? It isn't dharma just to think that eating vegetables, just by eating vegetables, if that's going to get you to paramatma, then a cow does that as well, right? Right. So you have these funny little uh, tidbits in there as well, where you can kind of see the personality of the guru as well, uh, kind of directing what is important. So when you say dharma. getting to paramatma, what do you mean by that? Um, or what did the guru mean by that? Basically, I, what I'm uh, I, with with the understanding that it's it's the same sort of question as the fo the kids asking the or the, the the people asking the guru to write the <laughs> explanation, but but maybe so that folks who I guess I guess where I kind of what I what I hope is that people listening to this, some of them might be six with like a really like 
you know, a pretty broad learning and sort of understanding of what a lot of these ideas mean. But a lot of them, a lot of folks might be six who are maybe only previously exposed to the maybe they don't they don't understand the traditional languages and they their their main access to things is sort of you know there is one god and truth is his name and and sort of these traditions these these right. um translations that are often couched in sort of colonialized language and right. and you know right and and so that often can seem um very much like i mean uh uh, uh you know, kind of King James Bible sort of right. ideas of, and not no offense to you know our our Christian brothers and sisters, but but just like a, it's a very different philosophical concept in terms of when we're talking mm-hmm. about like a god or a deity or when you you say paramatma, like these words, these ideas of sort of what what Sikhs are contemplating is is maybe worth talking about a little bit, and and also uh, for you know secular folks people who don't believe in a god or a, a theos or like a deity of some kind or um because from my reading of of Sikh philosophy and Sikh thought it's equally accessible to a secular person in terms of something a a, a school or a, you know a cosmos of thought to engage with for its own merits regardless of whether you even necessarily believe in uh, like a, de- a, a, the- a, a, a whether you're a theist or not. Right. I mean, um, in regard to if you're a theist or not, I mean, the apophatic language itself is is trying to get away from concepts of you know God being something, hmm. right? As opposed to kind of we're we're all in this together. We're all um, one type of energy. That's not um dualistic in in uh, the least right and that's actually a theme that kind of runs through the dasamrat as well i mean uh it starts off with job side um akalasut gyan prabhat so you have these compositions which speak to uh devotional uh components as well as um you could translate it as wisdom right you have mm-hmm. these components kind of taking jabs at um basically hypocrisy mm-hmm. right if you think doing this will help you it's it will not if you think doing this will help you it will not you also have components within the dasam granth that are teaching quite secular wisdom as well you know if you're mm. in this type of situation that this uh, i'm specifically talking about the uh largest component of the dasam granth the chiratropa kyan the 405 stories of uh deceit you know if you're in this type of situation maybe this is not the best situation to be in because it could maybe lead to your ruin Right? right, and some of these uh, are quite humorous. Some of those type of stories. So uh, it's not only uh, the compositions within the Dasamgat are not only this type of religious right. um, type of literature, but even the religious literature can be engaged with in terms of like, you know, um, I know this is exactly going back to that type of saki is that wherever your whatever framework you you have in your mind. You can use Gurbani to facilitate that framework. Hmm. Such that, I mean, you have this in um, all the Guru Granth Sahib as well. The, um, some of the writings of the, of the previous Gurus, when they encounter, let's say, Muslims or yogis or what have you, notice that the terminology being used is 
whatever terminology they're speaking to. For example, right. if they're speaking to a Muslim, they're going to speak in that language. They're going to speak in those terms. Right. You have reifying of certain practices and say, okay, if you're a Muslim, um, the five prayers, they should be truth. Hmm. Number one, they should be contentment. Number two, you know, you have this reifying of, of their own practices such that, sure, you can be a Muslim, yet still engage with Sikh, uh, Sikhism, right? The, I, the ideas in Sikhism. Even to the extent that you have historical sources talking about Mardana, um, Guru Nanak's, you know, uh, friend mm. uh, who traveled with him, devotee. Um, when he was buried, he was buried with uh, Muslim rites, right. right? There was no need to take on some of the exterior traditions and rituals that, um, that Guru Nanak himself followed. So mm. uh, there is this um, understanding that the essence is important, not the exterior. So it's something that um, somebody once once told me, kind of talking about these types of ideas, is it, this line that always sort of um, rings rings in my mind when I think about these types of ideas is that it was like the gurus were communicating with everybody um, using shared common principles versus rules. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this is how um, advocacy communication works, right? You know, ideas, concepts, traditions, rituals, they don't emerge in a vacuum, right? right. They're in relation to other things, right? So it would be necessary um, if you're speaking to someone to use their language, right? And this is why um, contextualization of Gurbani is important um, to the extent that for example, uh, some commentaries or some Janamsakis or historical books shed light on, okay, this passage, this uh, scripture was composed in regard to or uh, for the audience of, for mm. example, this person. You know, and th- that's called Uthanika, the historical context mm. of that passage. And if you look through some of the older commentaries, they throw this in there to, to give more, uh, to shed more light on why those passages were written. That really helps you understand as well. So the, I think that uh, you know we're we're kind of coming up in the end of our time, but but these are ideas that um, I'd really love to kind of make a a cornerstone of this show because we're talking a lot about um, uh, so far in the show we've very much been talking about sort of historical moments, right? And and this is the first time I think yeah. that we're talking about more philosophical uh, conversation. Um, but I'd love to continue these conversations with you uh, in the future and, and also mm-hmm. to bring in kind of more um, guests with varying perspectives and things like that. And, and uh, I wonder if you'd be you know, interested in, in uh, making that happen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, um, yeah, so I think, uh, I guess, you know, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time. Um, Thanks for and, having me on. And, you know, to kind of close close things up, I, you know, we touched on some things that I think might, um, I don't know, ruffle some feathers or, or make people kind of, um, I don't know, they do fly in the face a little bit of, of a lot of uh, traditional understanding, as at least as far as I see it, of Sikh philosophy. Um, but... Uh, in that sort of, in that spirit or in that kind of action, 
Um, I would never want to make anybody feel somehow like inadequate in their own sort of understanding or practice as a sick. Um, and, you know, you, you might be coming at it, you know, whatever perspective you're coming from, whatever your, your traditions, whatever your disciplines, whatever your commitments are as a sick and whatnot, like, I just want to say that, like, I fully, me personally, like, I fully, like, honor that and respect that. And, um, you know, this isn't, I don't want this to be, like, some sort of, um, I don't know, uh, Jabala, if you kind of have any feeling <laughs> about this. But, like, you know, how, you know, it's like, this isn't about, like, saying one, like, you, your understanding is wrong or whatever. It's sort of going, you know, this is maybe a way that hasn't been focused on for a long time in in sort of global Sikh thought. Um, and maybe this is something we can talk about in the future, but sort of why we don't think about things in this way necessarily in the traditional sort of places of learning. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and we don't, don't ever want to like, I don't know, you know, disrespect anybody's traditions or practices and stuff like that. I mean, what do you... What do you kind of do do with that or think about that when, when oh, you... I think um, you know this type of discussion is healthy right you know right. In, in a way this is you know our contemplation upon uh, Gurbani in the scripture I mean the word contemplation vichar in Punjabi comes from the Sanskrit root vich which mm. means to wander and explore right mm. you know it's it's the exploration it's leaving no stone unturned right no corner uh, unexplored and it is healthy to have uh, variants of views, uh, such that you can kind of shed light on things that you may not have thought of. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, in that spirit, if you're listening to this and you're finding yourself, I don't know, like that's bullshit or this is, that's amazing. Or what about this? Or here's another perspective. Um, I, you know, I want to hear from you. Uh, and I think that that's sort of what we're doing here is just creating a spark you know, to, to spark a conversation and to contemplate together in a spirit that is accessible and egalitarian in terms of, you know, meeting each other where we're at and in respect. Um, but also like, yeah, just presenting our ideas with our convictions and, but being open to each other and open to new ideas and interpretation without, and I think what happens a lot, at least like on sick social media is like, well, if, if you're ever talking about anything that's related to like Hindu cosmology in the context of the Sikh uh, world, you're um, a far right Hindu fascist spy who has come to uh, infiltrate uh, Sikhism and <laughs> and you are a secret agent of the Indian government. Uh, Jwala Singh, uh, to my understanding, in your six months over in, in Punjab learning uh, traditionally, were you radicalized by the RSS <laughs> or fascists? No, sir. No? Okay. All right. So, and I also uh, was not. I did live in India for many years, but was not uh, approached at any point by the Shiv Sena or the RSS. Um, and, you know, their shorts are really whack anyway, So, and their <laughs> hats are so dumb. So, um, yeah, if you don't know what those things are, you can Google them. But uh, yeah, like, yeah, I just want to put that out there. And I really would love folks to like just contribute and ask questions or or offer ideas. Um, you can email me and I will, you know, if there are good questions or ideas and stuff, 
We can answer your questions or we can engage with your ideas. You can email me um, at podcast.theone at gmail.com and you can uh, tweet at uh, at Javala saying he's at J-V-A-L-A-A-A. Is that right? Three A's Correct, at the yeah. end? Yeah. So Javala, you can find his work on YouTube. I'll put a link um, in the description of the show. You I know can... we didn't cover uh, too much of the story of Kadag Singh, but if anybody does want to see yeah. um, or want to dig a little bit deeper into that, I do have a video on Kadag Singh there as well as an introduction to the Dusting Grounds as well. Yeah, and it's it's much more, it doesn't have my like meandering like ADD brain <laughs> randomly asking questions and changing topics. So it's a it's definitely a better explanation of that that aspect of this story, um, and it's really cool. It's what, 15 minutes long on, on YouTube, and yep. it's well worth it. Um, as well as every other video on that channel. Or if you're a Sikh or not, or whoever you are, and you're interested in engaging with these ideas and this philosophy, definitely check that out. It's super super cool. Um, so. Uh, yeah, any, anything else that you wanted to, to offer before we go? No, I think that pretty much covers it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and we really look forward to doing it again. And thanks, everybody else, for, uh, for checking out the show. And we'll see you next time. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. Next uh, episode, we'll be talking to Gunita Singh about uh, partition and the oral history project that she's been in charge of for the last several years and the over 5,000 oral histories that that uh, effort has collected. And we'll also be talking to Jasjeet Singh about the ongoing vilification and demonization of Sikh identity in uh, modern uh, media and in particular uh, Canadian media over the last couple of months. Please remember, you can follow me at Shabid, S-H-A-B-D dot one, uh, O-N-E on Instagram, at Shabid Singh on Twitter. Uh, and you can also find the website at theonepodcast.com. Please remember to subscribe on whatever service you listen to this to on. Uh, it helps get the word out. And if you feel up to it, please leave a review. See you next time.